How do you feel? Or what do you think when someone says to you, God is speaking to me. Do your ears perk up with anticipation? Or does your antennas rise with skepticism? For me, it all depends on the person. If I know the person, if I know the outcome and the fruit of their lives, then I can respond, wow, that is exciting. Tell me more. But there are others who say God is speaking to me, and my ears perk up, but for different reasons. My confidence gauge is fluttering. My skeptical antennas are buzzing. Because I don't know what that means to them. Same statement, God is speaking to me. The difference is the context. Now, it could come from a very rational understanding of the intersection between the spiritual and natural world. Or it could come from a place of manipulation or even emotional instability. In 1884, one of Ohio's own was elected as president. Now, he was not a very well-known president. His name is James Garfield. When I say Garfield, probably what comes to your mind first is the cat, not the president. But for Garfield, the presidency was a job he neither wanted nor sought. He took the nomination in order to break a log jam. He preferred much to stay at his farm home and mentor where he could walk through the orchards, relax on his porch or roughhouse with his boys. Historians say he could have been a tremendous president, and he was wildly popular. But his term lasted only about six months. He was assassinated by a mentally ill man named Charles Gateau. Now, Gateau was once an itinerant evangelist, thought God had spoken to him in this context, thought he was doing God's will by shooting Garfield at a railroad station in Baltimore. Now, this idea of God speaking and mental illness came up in the news recently. So it's a very contemporary subject. When Vice President Mike Pence said that Jesus had spoken to him, Joy Behar of ABC's The View said this, It's one thing to talk to Jesus. It's another thing when Jesus talks to you. That's called mental illness, if I'm not correct. Hearing voices. Now, Behar was widely renounced for her comments and forced to offer up something of an apology. But Behar's comments, if nothing else, reveal this tension. What do we do with this notion of a God speaking to human beings? Connecting this subject to our series in Acts and the role of the Holy Spirit, I'm afraid that if Behar had a problem with our vice president, she would also have a problem with our heroes that we've met, like Peter and Paul, throughout the book of Acts. The author of Acts repeatedly stated the Spirit said when referencing how early Christians received personal guidance. It's way obvious that Luke is trying to indicate how much the Holy Spirit was behind, was initiating this movement of God. But what did that look like? The Spirit says. What form did it take? How did the Spirit speak? 
Was it audible? Was it something inward? Was it through the voice of prophets? And even with greater relevance for us today, can God speak in those same ways to us? Can we hear Him when we need Him? When we are discouraged? When we are alone? When we are at a fork in the road? I'd like to try to answer three questions today. One, how did the Spirit speak in this context? Secondly, can He speak to us today? And then thirdly, how can I learn to listen? Pray with me for a moment here. Father, in Jesus' name, open up our eyes and hearts and give us understanding in a very confusing subject. Give us clarity, give us understanding, but even more than that, God, give us a hunger and a love to hear your voice. I remember the words of John the Baptist, how he said, the groomsman loves to hear the voice of the groom. May that be true of us as well. For Christ's sake, we pray. Amen. Amen. Stand with me if you would. I'm going to read this, our passage for today. If you want to follow along in the Pew Bible in front of you, it's page 925. I'm going to begin at Acts 16, verse 6, and read through verse 10. Here's God's Word. And they went through the region of Phygeria and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately he, we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Go ahead and take a seat. Okay. This passage raises... The questions that I've outlined. This passage is taken from Paul's second missionary journey. Now we're jumping in midstream. He had already left from his home church, Antioch. He traveled throughout the regions of Galatia and Phygera. That is referenced in verse 6. That is where Paul visited previous churches, or churches he had planted on a previous trip. But now they are wanting to set out for uncharted territory. And it is obvious from the text, be nice if we could show the map. It's obvious from the text that he intends to head west. In all likelihood, his team would have traveled on the ancient road called the Via Sebasta. But the Holy Spirit prevented them from speaking there. Detour 1. So they headed north toward Bithynia, a city not far from the Black Sea. Bithynia is in a mountainous region. It's, you get a picture of a very beautiful place. The valley leading down to the sea is filled with fruit trees of different sorts, uh, particularly orange trees. Would have been a great place to visit. But Detour 2. The Spirit, in verse 7, the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to enter into the city. The only direction left ahead was northwest 
So they went through Mycenae, and they landed in the port city of Troas, a city sitting on the Aegean Sea. Now, there's still ruins today of Troas, and those ruins indicate that it was a uh, sizable and a very significant city. But by this point, can you try to imagine what Paul's team is feeling? I mean, they've got to be perplexed. God, we're on this mission for you. What are you up to here? We could have walked straight to Troas and saved several hundred miles walking. All we have are calloused feet and worn sandals. But did you see what happens next? While spending the night in Troas, something out of the ordinary takes place. Paul has a dream. And in the dream, a man from Macedonia begs them to come to their city. Now look at verse 10. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them, the best way to help. The actual Greek word for concluding here is interesting. It gives a clue to the process that they went through. According to John Stott, this Greek word means literally to bring together or to put together in one's mind. It infers connecting several points of data into a conclusion. Another translation renders it assuredly gathering. The picture picture painted here is the mission team discussing the dream, pairing it with the previous detours, and asking themselves, what is God saying? What does all of this mean? And drawing a conclusion, they reasoned and then went immediately, believing God had called them to Macedonia. Some doors had closed. One door had opened. So, they set out for Greece into the continent of Europe to preach the gospel there. Now, a little knowledge from the world of geography will help us see the larger picture and appreciate what God is doing. Paul's team had no recognition of traveling to a different continent, likely. They just were traveling from region to region. But God's vantage point was different. The closed doors propelled the gospel into Europe. This is the first time the gospel will hit the shores of Europe. And from Europe, through the centuries, the gospel has spread to Africa, Asia, North America, South America, Latin America, Australia, literally pushing to the ends of the earth. I would say those were two momentous detours, wouldn't you? God was working. And so, this gives you an outline, a picture of the story. So, having shared that, let's now look at that first question. How does a spirit speak? How does a spirit speak? Now, here's the intriguing thing I want to explore with you this morning. Because sometimes what stands out is not what the scripture says, but what the scripture doesn't say. We are told how the doors are opened. 
We are not told how the doors are closed, how they were prevented from preaching in Asia or going to Bithynia. We're simply not told. Now, there are possibilities. The team may have had strong internal impressions or promptings. There may have been an illness. There may have been opposition. Silas, who was a team member and listed as a prophet, may have spoken prophetically, revealing God's guidance. There could be a host of other circumstances that prevented them from making those moves. But God, as he inspired Luke to write the scripture, does not give us details. Why would God not reveal details to us? Wouldn't that help us today figure out like which doors are closed and what doors are being opened to us? Wouldn't we be more efficient if the scriptures would tell us about that? Well, obviously I can't answer that question. But one thing I can say, the scriptures do reveal to us truth about how human beings pursue the will of God. How we, were, how we pursue personal guidance. Most of us, if not all of us, at one time or another, are super focused on finding out the will of God. Especially if the issue is very important to us. Should I take this job? Should I marry this person? Where should I go to school? Should I move to this city? You're at some fork in the road. What path should I take? We've all been there. And I just want to ask this as a question to you this morning. Maybe there's a reason the Spirit doesn't reveal the how. Is it possible that God does not want us to get fixated on a specific methodology or a specific method for discerning His will? You know, if the method was the point of our focus, well, that would preclude us from having to wrestle with God, having to lean into God for the answer. If there were a surefire method, knowing His will could be reduced to a scheme, an equation, how to manipulate the magic eight ball. Remember that? If you're old enough... And with that being said, no real relationship is even needed. You see, this is the paradox. It is entirely possible for Christians to want with certainty to know the will of God more than wanting God himself. It could be that what we really want is not really to know the will of God, but rather a guarantee of our success. A guarantee of our protection. A guarantee that we will not fail. It could be that we merely slap the phrase God's will over our own agenda. And if truth be told, frankly, any deity would do. Any deity who could see in the future and predict it would do for us. Yeah, for Christians it is entirely possible To want certainty in God's will, but not God himself. You recall from our study in 1 Samuel, remember the end of 1 Samuel? 
This is the place that godless Saul eventually ended up. He wanted to know the future so desperately, if he, were to, if, if he was going to lose his kingdom, that he pursues God and God does not give him an answer. So what does Saul do? He goes to places that were expressly forbidden to go. So this first question, how does the Spirit speak? Beyond the dream? We're not sure. <laughs> we're not sure how the Spirit spoke. He could have used any number of things, albeit circumstances are a prophetic word. The Holy Spirit in His wisdom chooses not to reveal it to you and me. So, what can we learn from Paul and his team? Well, only that his team and Paul had attuned eyes and had attuned ears to the Spirit and what God was trying to do. So they used every data point that God made available to them that began with Scripture. It was because of Scripture they went in the first place. Secondly, there was a humility before one another as they reasoned together. And thirdly, there was the recognition that God was the Lord and sovereign over every circumstance. This has been part of of learning to hear God. This has been part of my experience and my leadership so many times. I I sense God's leadership to move forward in a certain area, but I also must wait on His timing. More times than not, I have jumped out ahead of God, and then things go a little bit south. Matter of fact, I sense I'm in the middle of something like that right this moment, right this past week. On Wednesday or Thursday this past week, I had to say no to an opportunity to minister in a specific city that is really special to me. An invitation that I had longed for for quite some time, but the timing wasn't right. And I've learned you just can't get out ahead or get out in front of God. How did the Spirit speak? We're not sure But he did speak. And I think that one thing we can take from the silence on the methodology is we can conclude this. That what's more important than how God speaks or the form the Spirit takes in leading us, what's more important, what's more critical is the position of our hearts to listen. I think that's what God wants to take away from this. Not the form he takes, but the position of our hearts and our readiness to listen when the Spirit speaks. Okay? Let's go to the second question. Can He speak to us today? Now what I mean by this is, can we be moved today like Peter and Paul were by the voice and the leadings of God? Now I cannot overemphasize how important this question is. It is a theme we have returned to again and again in this series. And this question relates essentially to how you read the Bible and what you believe about the Bible. If we are to understand the Bible, we must recognize that the people in the Bible were just like you and me. They were not superhuman or movie characters playing a role. None of them, I promise you, spoke in a British accent. 
or had perfect white teeth behind an otherwise dusty face and dusty exterior. They were people just like you and me. Dallas Willard writes this, Those who lived through these experiences, hearing God in the Bible, felt very much as we would have if we were in their place. Unless this comes home to us, the things that happen in the Bible will remain unreal to us. We will not be able to believe the Bible or find its contents to be real because it will have no experiential substance for us. Willard says the failure to make this connection results in two things that are both bad. One, we will turn the Bible into a book of abstract doctrines, which Willard says means one can search endlessly the Bible without ever encountering God himself or hearing his voice. This is what Jesus said to the Pharisees, that even though you've given your life to studying the Bible, you have never heard the Father's voice, nor seen His form. Meaning, there was no relationship there. Secondly, without this connection, the Bible will become boring to us. And we will stop reading it altogether. Or, as Willard writes, we will choke it down like medicine, because someone told us it would be good for us. If we are to hear God's voice, if we are to hear the Spirit speak to us, what we must do is observe how the Word came to those in the Bible. Again, Willard writes this. How did they experience God's communication? What was it like for them to hear God? We must prayerfully but boldly use our God-given imaginations as we read the stories of people who encountered God. We must ask ourselves, what was it like for Moses standing by the bush? Little Samuel lying in his darkened room. Elijah under the inspiration from the harpist. Ananias receiving his vision about Paul. And Peter on his rooftop. We must pray for the faith and experiences that would enable us to believe that such experiences could happen to us. Only then will we be able to recognize, accept, and dwell in them when they come. Now, is Willard suggesting that we should expect the same circumstances or the same surroundings or even the same form of communication? If so, you should crawl up onto your rooftop this afternoon and wait. Or set fire to your shrub and listen. Actually, I have planted in my house these bushes. They're actually called little Moseses. And uh, they're, burning, they're, they're burning bushes. The leaves get fiery red in the fall. But that is missing the point. This is not what Willard is saying. His point is that has God desired to communicate to them... God desires to communicate to you. What we learn from these biblical encounters are truths that inform us about God's ability to call, guide, encourage, and comfort us. And about our readiness to listen. The main form that God uses today to speak to us 
is the scriptures. This is his, if I could say it this way, this is his normal means of speaking to us. But when I say normal, I am not stripping the Bible of its supernatural power. God, using his Bible to speak to us, makes the human heart the intersection between the natural and supernatural world. Martin Luther used this phrase to describe his experience in individual Bible reading. The phrase he used is that the Holy Spirit is preaching to me. Now, he didn't suggest this happened every time. He didn't suggest this was completely under his control. But there were times when he would read the scriptures when scripture after scripture after scripture would begin to just rush into his mind with force and with power, filling his heart with joy, speaking to his needs, and giving him a sense of direction. I cannot tell you the number of times, again, it's not every time, but I cannot tell you the number of times that I have experienced that. I did not have the language to explain it, but I think Luther's phrase captures it. The Holy Spirit preaching to me. Now, this is God's normal way of speaking. Yet at the same time, reflection on Scripture itself opens up the reality that God may sometimes use out of the normal means. And what Willard is suggesting is, and others, are we open to those happening? Or is God limited? I want you to consider an up-to-date story of a prophetic dream. There are so many stories like this. But let me share this one. It's very interesting, connecting to, again, a prophetic dream that Paul had. It's told by a pastor, and it's the opening days of a, of a church. And this pastor had an older mentor that was helping him. He allowed the pastor to speak on a Sunday morning, this mentor pastor, before the church opened up. And he and his wife both were a little uneasy about some of his comments. And their concerns were followed up by a dream. Here's what he writes. The second clue came in the form of a prophetic dream. Now, I'd never had a prophetic dream. I actually was not sure such miraculous things still happened and was skeptical of prophetic dreams altogether. But while I was sleeping one night, the Holy Spirit gave me a dream in which I was standing in the foyer of our rented church on the opening night of our church plant. As I turned around in my dream, an older man walked in by himself carrying a Bible in a brown leather case and wearing a blue shirt, green shorts, sandals, and a homemade cross around his neck. He informed me that he wanted to pastor the church and that I should step aside and let him. God then spoke to me from two Bible passages in Acts 20 and 1 Peter 5, and both sections deal with shepherding and guarding the church. So this pastor had the dream and then went on to share his dream with his wife and a few key leaders. They prayed and fasted for wisdom. And then here's the rest of the story. On the opening night of our church plant in October of 1996, the service was just getting started when my wife realized she had forgotten her Bible in the foyer. I jumped up to get it, and as I turned around, I found myself standing alone in the foyer just as I had been in the dream. 
The older man then walked in the door wearing the same outfit he had worn in the dream and came toward me speaking every word he had in my dream. I was so stunned I was momentarily speechless. When I collected my thoughts, I told him to leave our church and never come back. A few months later, another older pastor contacted me and said that the man God had warned me of had been kicked out of his denomination on suspicion of undermining young pastors and taking money from young churches. There are accounts like this. This is just one account. There are many, many like it of God speaking today using some forms that he used in the past. A few uh, simple examples from my own life. Some years ago, while at work here on a week, just a normal weekday, I received a very acute and strong impression to visit a member of our church at his workplace. Now, I knew already this person was struggling and in the midst of a, a particular spiritual battle. But at this moment, there was an urging and a sense of need to act now. And indeed, on arriving at his workplace, he was facing a very real temptation in the moment. Both of us were awed at the Holy Spirit's leading. Another time, quite some years ago, the Spirit saved me from a terrible, and I do mean that, a terrible pastoral blunder. Uh, a team of people had worked for several weeks creating a video to complement a message that I was giving. It was a message on that every spiritual gift was needed in the church. And the video was to co- illustrate that point. A number of people spent a lot of time on it. But based on how the video was put together, as the week was moving towards the message, the Spirit was gently nudging me that this video could be perceived as hurtful towards those with disabilities. No one intended that, but the, the possibility began to weigh on me. But I thought, well, was I taking things too seriously? I tend to be a really sensitive person, so was I, was I being oversensitive? But as I prayed, I sensed a strong internal leading by the Spirit to cancel it. Though I knew it would be very disappointing to those who spent several weeks working on it. So nothing more was said. It was canceled. Nothing more was said about it during the service. Nothing was said about those suffering with disabilities in the service. Yet after the service, a young man came up to me, a young man who suffers from uh, mental disabilities. As far as I know, he was completely unaware of the canceled project. And for some reason on that day, he had written a question on a piece of paper and handed it to me after the service with the question on it, why do I have to wrestle with a disability? I can't tell you how awed I was in the moment, how protected I felt by the Spirit, how relieved I felt, um, how terrible I thought at the potential of hurting this young man. But I was so thankful for the Holy Spirit's gentle voice. The note came because this young man was asking a sincere question. But the note also came in order to build my faith and to convince me of the power of listening. Let's go to the third question. So we've asked the question, how does the Spirit speak? 
We've asked the question, does he want to speak today to us in a way that would move us like it moved Moses and Peter and Paul and the great men and women of God? And the answer to that is yes, he does. But on this last part of the message, I'd like to turn a little bit from from teaching the Bible now to putting my pastor hat on. Because these five application points come from my experience in pastoring and pastoring you. And so I want to share these five things. Number one, here in terms of moving forward in hearing the Spirit of God and being led by the Spirit of God. Number one, I want to encourage you to avoid extremes. Avoid extremes. There are some who say that God only speaks through the Bible. Now, that is true if by speaking we are saying that the Bible is the ultimate authority in our lives, that it is sufficient for our every need, that the Bible is complete and cannot be added to, this we affirm with great conviction. But our, if by speaking, if we mean that God cannot speak through our experiences or through others, I don't think that is correct. For even as we saw in our example of Paul, God used circumstances or even a dream to personally guide him. In this context, the speaking is not adding to Scripture. Rather, it is helping us understand it or apply it to a given specific circumstance. So this is one extreme, that God can only speak through the Bible. But there's another extreme that is equally dangerous, and I must say is more prevalent within the Christian body today, and including us. And that is this, an over-reliance on circumstances to guide me. I read of one church group this past week in a different, uh, different country that actually encouraged members to keep the Bible away from them so they can be led only by the Holy Spirit. Now that is an extreme example. But functionally, that is what a lot of us do. That is what a lot of American Christians do. They look only to exceptional happenings or extraordinary random events to guide them into who they are to marry or what job to take or where to move or what path to take. And that can be a dangerous assumption. If we ignore the scripture, if we ignore others and think that God is only speaking through these random circumstances, and if we think, therefore, he is guaranteed a success, then what happens to your faith when, when the marriage falls apart, when the child dies, when the job goes south? What happens then to our faith? So that's one thing. Avoid both extremes. Secondly, discerning his voice takes practice. Discerning his voice takes practice. God wants to develop in you and me a pattern of learning to listen. But it takes time. Do you remember a few weeks ago we talked about Romans chapter 8? And Paul wrote there that when we believe in Christ, 
the Holy Spirit enters into us. One of the main goals of this, of the Holy Spirit coming, is to testify to our spirit. What is he seeking to prove? He's seeking to prove that the Father is perfectly good and perfectly loving. And he's there to help urge us to cry out to the Father as his sons and his daughters. So he's helping to assure us that we are his sons. We are his daughters. He is our Father. We can cry out to him. The testimony of our belonging to God as Father does not come to us through a flashing neon sign or through a placard or through a banner following an airplane. Indeed, it has some mystery to it. It is an inward conversation. It is His Spirit, capital S, communicating to our spirit, lowercase s. But this is the framework This is the cauldron where we learn to distinguish his voice from other voices. Think about children. Over time, children learn the unique inflections and tone of their parents such that they can discern and identify that voice amongst many competing voices. Or think of those who have to learn Braille. They uh, begin learning letters, and those letters and shapes all seem strange and unrecognizable. But over time, they learn the shape and the feel and the texture of those letters such that they're able to read. In the same way, it takes time to learn and to distinguish. But those who are mature do, according to Hebrews 5.14, we learn to distinguish the voice of God, the will of God, how He's speaking to us. Thirdly, we must take up a listening position. We were made to be in a relationship with the Father through Jesus. And this is the goal of the Holy Spirit, to facilitate that relationship. To throw a floodlight on Jesus, enlightening us as to His beauty and His power and His glory. We hear best when our agenda is to serve Him. If we have agendas or goals that throw a spotlight on us, we will find that we are either unable to hear or what we do hear comes through a filter that is not clean and pure. And therefore, the result is muddy and is compromised. I bet some of you have been in conversations where you said, that person just isn't listening to me. Why aren't they listening if you're being clear? Why did they hear something completely different? Because they had a completely different agenda. (laughs) In the same way, we can't hear when our agenda is self-serving. Fourthly, don't spiritually manipulate others. Sometimes we use the phrase, the Lord spoke to me, as a coded way of saying, I don't want anyone's counsel. (laughs) I don't want anyone to disagree with me. I have made up my mind. And therefore the phrase the Lord spoke to me can actually be a form of manipulation. And it does not capture the spirit here that we've seen that's been represented here today. When this happens with spiritual leaders and it's spoken in a dogmatic way, it can be spiritually abusive to others. 
You see, when we say the Lord spoke to me and then rule out others, what we are actually doing is raising our ability to listen to the point of infallibility. And that is a level of confidence we only give to the scriptures. When we hear, we must remain humble and work towards a common mind with others. And finally, number five. If you're learning to receive leadings and promptings from the Holy Spirit, if you're receiving direction from the Spirit, here's a general principle to follow. The more risk involved, the more risk involved in following a leading, the more counsel you should receive. The more risk involved, the more counsel you should receive. Okay, five practical applications to this. To help us keep this thing balanced, yet alive, and open to God speaking to us. So to conclude, I just want to say one last thing in conclusion. There was a human being that came to this earth that listened and obeyed God the Father perfectly. Only one. And his name was Jesus the Son. John chapter 5, John tells us, or Jesus said, John records it. Jesus said, I can only do what I see my Father doing. Now, Jesus did not see his Father physically. He saw him by faith, just like we have to. But because Christ was a perfect listener and a perfect imitator, he was worthy to die for the sins of those who have not listened very well. Anybody want to be anybody aware that you're a part of that camp? Part of the camp that's not listened very well? Not obeyed very well? Well, there's one that did. And because he did, he's worthy to die for all the times, for every single time. That we did not listen well. Every time we listened with a self-serving agenda. Every time we listened and ignored. Every time we listened and walked away. Every time we listened and misconstrued to what we wanted. Every time you did that. He bore that on the cross. He bore it on the cross. And you see, because of that, He can offer a complete, unconditional forgiveness to you. And to me, who've not listened well. That's how you and me, we can start anew today. We can start anew this week. We can start afresh this week. Getting into that position of listening. Being motivated with a full heart and a free heart and a clean heart. Because we remember, the best listener died for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the moments we could spend together. And I I pray for my friends this morning as they reflect, Father, on your words. As they reflect on your words, I pray that wherever they're facing this morning, those that need comfort, Father, 
those that have not heard your voice in a long time. Father, those who have come here this morning and they really walked in here and could care less if they heard your voice. They've not really been hungry for that for a long time. God, for those that have been apathetic, I pray that you would stir us up to be passionately hungry, to hear your voice, and to be like John the Baptist who loved, got excited about hearing your voice, speaking, eager to listen, eager to walk with you. God, some here are in the need of direction. Some are at a fork in the road. Some are facing an ethical dilemma. Father, some are lonely and discouraged and hurting this morning and wounded and desperately need to hear the voice, your voice. God, I pray that the God of the breakthrough, you would break through. Lead us now as we sing and pray, as we we worship through our giving as we worship through singing, may we come to a place and a position where our hearts are stilled and we're able to listen and hear, maybe like it was the first time we ever heard your voice. Lead us, God. Our hearts are ready. Our hearts are ready. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit.